Luke chapter 18. And uh, we're going to be reading and starting verse 28. And just uh, as y'all turn there and get there, I'll give y'all a second. Um, just a reminder, this is at the, towards the tail end of uh, Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, six days before Jesus would be crucified. And he is beginning to culminate and, and push his ministry to where it is headed and going. And that's a big part of what's happening here. And, but there's some things in this passage, and this very familiar thing. Uh, normally we have little, and I know a lot of churches will have kids run down the aisle with their palm, you know, palm branches and all these kind of things. And so it's very familiar, but I think some really challenging things as well in it. So if you uh, have your Bible, if not, it'll be up here on the screen behind me. So hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany. And at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where you are entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untie it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he, ar- and he rode along, and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you even had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much um, that you have revealed yourself specially to us in the 66 books of your Bible and that we know that it is inerrant, that it has no error, infallible, never be proven wrong. And so when we come to your word, we know that we'd be transformed. And so, Lord, speak, speak through this broken vessel this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So some of my conservative friends, now I have, I have friends on both sides of the aisle, by the way. But some of my conservative friends right now are, are in a little panic freak out because of this new spending bill that came out. Now, these conservative friends of mine are 
fiscally conservative, and they want to reduce spending, reduce government at all costs. And now the government that they've put in place is not achieving what they had hoped. So they are beginning to wonder, well, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe there's a problem here. On the other side of the aisle, I have some uh, particularly black friends of mine who uh, the previous president had, had hopes of hope and change. Remember that? Uh, and, and many of them, after eight years, were wondering what happened. Matter of fact, uh, of quite a strong supporter of Obama, uh, and a leading voice, at least he was until very recently in the black community, Tavis Smiley, said black folk in the era of Obama have lost ground in every major economic category. And so where, where's the hope and change we would hope for? And now I have conservative friends who are saying, where's the swamp draining we had hoped for? And then so maybe it's like, well, at least Oprah will run. Maybe she'll give us a free car, something under our seats. You know, and so we look to leaders. We're always looking to leaders and people in charge. We're looking to political figures or whatever. And we want them to, to, uh, to do things for us. We want them to be our leaders, to be our kings. Um, we're all looking for a leader. Or can I put it this way? We're all looking for saviors in some way or another. And so this morning, a good question we should ask is what kind of savior do you seek when we come here for a reason come to church for a reason we 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 vote for a reason we do these kind of things and so the question a good question to ask what kind of savior do you really seek there's different kinds of saviors you could say a personal savior and a personal savior is the kind of savior that comes in and helps you with your personal issues, your personal problems. They help you with the, the pain in your life or the, the sickness and illness in your life or the struggles or the, the confusion, the anxiety in your life. And so we look for personal saviors very often. Or it could be a financial savior. If only I had X amount of dollars. If only I could land that job, then we'd be okay. A financial savior, or how about a? We've already mentioned a political savior, a leader who's going to rise and take care of this mess, figure it all out for us, help us figure you know how to create uh, mend this divide and these differences among us and all this kind of stuff. And so we put these leaders forward, hoping that they will do and help us in our lives and help us fix this big mess that we find ourselves in. But if you've been around long, long enough, you realize, wait a minute, these political saviors, they promise a whole lot and don't deliver very much. Well, this is Palm Sunday, and every year, millions and millions of Christians around the globe celebrate Palm Sunday. It is a, a, a celebration that can be heard around the globe in all kinds of different ways, celebrating what they call Jesus' triumphal entry entry into Jerusalem. 
And the people celebrate, saying, yes, our Savior has come. Blessed is he who comes. Hosanna, save us is the word. Hosanna, so it literally means save us. And so the people then were looking for a Savior, and the people today are looking for a Savior. And what's interesting about this passage, I love this passage, is that it cuts across the grain of our hopes for a Savior and gives, not gives the Savior maybe we want, but the Savior we need. And so this triumphal entry was really, in fact, Jesus challenging our notions of success, power, and even salvation. Okay, so Jesus, this, this passage here challenges our notions of success, power, and salvation. So let's look at those. First of all, he's going to challenge our notion of success. Now, if you notice here, uh, this is a little orchestrated. Just like most political uh, uh, demonstrations might be. There has to be some organization some money behind it, some people getting bust in, all that kind of stuff. And that little bit of like that. Jesus somewhat orchestrates this event, gets this donkey, and he has all this stuff happen. And then it says that, uh, you know, all of his disciples began to, to have this cheer. But if you look in, in the book of John, you kind of begin to synchronize these things. It, this, it wasn't just his disciples. It was an entire multitude of people. So you're, you're talking thousands of people begin to gather and, and throw palm branches and to wave them in the air. And it's all reminiscent of an event that happened, a few, you know, a, a few hundred years before. Uh, when, it, what they call the Maccabean Revolts. When there was a, an uprising and the Jewish people began to th- try to throw out the Greeks in the, in the town or whatever. And they were victorious for a short period. And this very thing happened. The people waved their palm branches and they threw them down on the ground. And so many are saying, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the guy. This is the one. And they began to claim, here comes our king. They were hopeful for hope and change. Here's the king. And in fact, they were right. More right than they knew. Jesus is, in fact, the king. He would be the one to give the hope and change that people really want, hoped for, but in a very different way than they maybe expected. He was the king. And so you see this huge crowd, and everybody's celebrating Jesus. And, um, and, it, and if, you, if you haven't read this before, let's just, you know, my, we've all read the story. We kind of, actually very often we start at the end of the book, and we, we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, and that you hear that first. I mean, that should be the first thing you hear coming into a church. If they're preaching the gospel, you should hear about Jesus' death and resurrection, right? I hope, wouldn't you all agree with that? Okay. Um, but it kind of ruins the story a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, a good book kind of, you don't know what happens in the end. And so if you just try to put yourself into that, into this story, and you look and you see they're celebrating Jesus, you're like, yes, here he comes. Here comes Jesus, and here he comes, and and he's coming through, and everybody's celebrating, and you think, this is it. Jesus wins, the good guys win, he's going to be the king, he's going to fix the mess, this is it. And the people were thinking that too. And there's this huge celebration. And, then, you know, and like this is, this, Jesus is going to take his rightful place. He's going to win the day. And that's the ending we like. 
We like movies where the good guys win, where the underdog prevails, don't we? We love movies like Rudy, where he's getting carried across the field on the shoulders of the players. Whatever. We love that stuff. But that's not the story here. Because if you read through this whole passage, it kind of, especially here in Luke, it throws a curveball at the end. Here's Jesus being celebrated. All this is happening. And you think, yes, this is awesome. And we have our little kids running in the aisles of our churches with their palm branches. We think, yes. But then, instead of high-fiving everybody, you see him? You see if Jesus was into this. He'd be like, yeah, high-fiving everybody, doing the crowd wave, you know, um, maybe doing some crowd surfing and whatever. You know, he would be just eating it up, right? But instead of, of like celebrating himself being celebrated and celebrating this moment, what happens? We see him weeping. He says, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground, and he was drawn near, and already on the way to the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice in the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, and then verse 41 it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He weeps because he sees everybody celebrating and he knows what they are celebrating means nothing. It is, it is, it is hay and stubble. They are just, you know, celebrating what they think Jesus is going to give them. They, they are celebrating what Jesus would provide for them. And so instead of high-fiving and, and, you know, and enjoying the accolades, he's weeping. Okay, and these aren't the type of tears that you might see at the end of like a, the national championship or Super Bowl when a player's on the ground and he's got tears in his eyes and he's prevailed, he's victorious, those kind of These are tears of pain and sorrow for Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem has missed the idea. They have missed the, the whole point of all this. And here's why. Everyone was running out to Jesus because they believed he could be the solution or savior they were looking for. This is what they wanted after all. They wanted to be ruled by a man like David. A man that would ride, um, would rid the nation, excuse me, of, of oppressors. Would, would rule benevolently and would be kind to the common people. I mean, they wanted somebody to, to fix their problem. Whatever it might have been. It might have been a personal problem. They might have, they liked, they heard about Jesus. Maybe some of them had seen him heal. They're like, yes, we need a healer. He can fix our problems. Or he can knock, get this, this, uh, this dictatorship out of here and he fix our financial problems. And he can be kind to the common people. He's one of us. He can drain that swamp, let's put it that way. Or um, politically, political savior. But here's the thing. Six, about six days later, five, six days later, he is absolutely, completely, and totally disappointed every one of them. You hear that? By the end of the week, he has totally disappointed every one of them. 
And he's done it at a faster rate than anybody could stand. And they would then turn on him. Okay. Even those closest to him, his own disciples, even the closest 12, would eventually flee and betray him. And some of them betray him outright or abandon him in confusion and fear. Now, it really should challenge our notion of success here. What is success? A bunch of numbers, a bunch of praise, a huge crowd. You know, what, what is success? And Jesus, he, he basically takes the quote-unquote success he achieved, because he, he could have done that. And, and if you look throughout his ministry, his ministry wasn't about going around get, gaining support and likes and followers. Never heard that happen around anymore, do we? In, in fact, throughout his ministry, you see him running people off. He, he speaks words that are hard to hear, and they turn away. And, he, and his closest disciples, Peter himself, you know, a bunch of them walk away from Jesus at one point, And Jesus looks at his disciples, and particularly Peter, and says, aren't y'all going to lead too? And their only answer is, well, where are we going to go? So Jesus is not trying to create a crowd or a following. And so they are disappointed. And it really should challenge ours. So here's the thing. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, the call that he gives is that we would take up our cross. If you're going to follow me, take up your cross is the challenge. Are you willing? Now, the crowds, they believed they were to his disciples, but in fact, they really weren't. Same crowd, a few days later, instead of crying, Hosanna, would cry out, crucify him. And you, we have to really ask ourselves that question. Am I just a Hosanna crier today and a crucifier tomorrow? What is our cry? And so, to challenge our, our notions of success, especially in the church. Okay, secondly, this triumphal entry should challenge our notions of power. Um, so, the thing is, like, there's extremes here. You know, you think Jesus celebrated, he's going to come in power. But he, also, he wasn't just a weakling either. He wasn't just a, a weakling who couldn't do this. Um, and in fact, uh, one, one author put it this way, Jesus was humble but not modest. Jesus was, he wasn't trying to hide from, from this, this fame or anything of that sort. As a matter of fact, he produced this whole thing. I want you all to see this because this is really important. Jesus was intentionally creating this hubbub about himself. He was putting himself in the limelight. Okay, now, he wasn't doing it to get a bunch of fame and a bunch of followers and likers. He was doing it for another reason. Now, um, Matthew Henry, commentator, put it this way. Jesus was forward and willing. So he was forward. He put himself out there, and, to, and he did it to die for us. He went forward, bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, knowing very well the things that should befall him there. Yet he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. 
what Matthew Henry's saying is, he's looking at this, this, the Greek word here where it says that Jesus moved on or went forward to Jerusalem. The word there is kind of redundant. Because it says he went up to Jerusalem, but it said pressing on, he went on to, and it said it's to press on, to push ahead. Maybe very often in, in the face of opposition. So Jesus is determined, and he's moving in a clear, intentional direction to a, to a place. And now he has created this situation where all these people are like, Yay, Jesus! We love you! We can't wait to see what you give us! You know, a new car, whatever. Kind of, kind of attitude. And he's created this, and he's done it for a reason. Because what happens right away? Pharisees and the leaders come and say, you, you need to stop this. You need to stop them from praising you. And, and he began, he's basically putting himself in the line of fire intentionally. You see what he's doing here? This isn't about him becoming cool or whatever, looking great in front of a bunch of people, or drawing a crowd. He's doing it to become the target. You see it? He's stepping out in front of people. It kind of reminds me, um, after this the Parkview shooting, it was amazing stories of heroism. It was some horrible stories of cowardice as well, but... There's uh, one story of um, a, a, a football coach, Aaron Feese, or Feiss. He was 37 years old. He, was at, he wasn't even in the building, from what I've heard. He, he heard there was a shooting. Kids were telling him there was a shooter. We saw a guy with a gun. He, w- he actually took some kids in his golf cart, dropped them off away from the scene, and drove back, went into the building, and put himself in front of the bullets that could have hit children. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was, he was riding, on, riding up there on, front, on top of her, head high above everybody else's. And the, and the accolades were coming. And he weeps knowing where he's headed. And, and here's the thing, though. He's coming in power. He's not coming as a weakling. His head was high. Tears in his eyes, yes. His head was high. He was heading for a direction and a purpose. How do I know that? Because of his choice of actions. There was a reason he chose this young donkey. We read this earlier in the passage. So bring up Zechariah 9. Jesus was intentionally enacting, recalling a passage in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And go on. But the point is, he's recalling this passage in which the, this ruler, this leader would come into Jerusalem. Notice it says, 
what is his goal is that, that, that to cut off the chariots and the battle bow, bow would be cut off and the war horse would be defeated. And that's what's supposed to happen. And so Jesus, I mean, almost comically comes in riding on a little baby donkey. Baby donkey, not even a full grown one. It's a little baby donkey, probably stands about this high. I mean, it's got to be, he could probably barely fit on the thing. And here he comes in, and, and it's in, in direct contrast to what maybe, some would say maybe even could have happened the same day, is that um, Pontius Pilate had marched into the city the same year during the feast, in the Passover feasts, the same year he marched in and war horses, with armies and their armor and their swords and their spears and their displays of power. They had marched into the city and, and, and moved into the garrison right there in Jerusalem next to the temple to make sure there was no uprisings or anything else happening. And so um, some would say that this could have happened at the same time. On one side of the city is Pontius Pilate marching in with war horses and power and Jesus coming in on his little baby donkey. And it's all intentional. It's all extremely intentional of Jesus. He is doing it on, on purpose. Here's why. He's coming into rule, and he's coming in to save. But he's not coming by taking power or killing, but by losing power and dying. Jesus is coming on this little donkey to show us a different kind of power. Okay? Because he's going to triumph. How? Through sword? Through might? Through popularity? No, he's going to triumph through weakness so that his followers could come to salvation by repenting and admitting their needs. And so... It's, it's, it's a pattern to say, you will find power, you will find victory, you will find your life through losing it. You will find power through following the cross. There is power in the cross. And as Paul would say later, my, that God would say, my power, to, would tell Paul, my power is perfected in weakness. So Jesus is saying, the power of this world is not power. Let me show you what real power is. And he goes to show us the power of the cross. And so, with, with those two challenges, the notion of success and power, brings us back to our original question. What, what, is, what, are you, what is the Savior you're seeking? What is it? What Jesus is directly challenging theirs as well as our notions of salvation. And now the Jewish people, like we've already said, were looking for a leader. They were looking for a savior. And, and Jesus comes in. He's offering himself as a savior, right? But as soon as they realize, wait a minute. This isn't the kind of savior we were hoping for. This isn't the kind of leader we wanted. They turn on him bad and in, and within a few days they go from crying hosanna the savior has come the son of david 
you know, you know, this king has come. They crying out, Hosanna. Six days later are crying out, not just get rid of him, not just um, ignore him, crucify him. Let's not just uh, kill him, put him to death, or put him in prison, but rather hang him on a cross in a public, shameful way in which everybody would see. Crucify him. That is how they, far they had gone in a few days. And so they were looking for a personal savior. They were looking for a financial savior. They were looking for a political savior. They weren't looking for the kind of savior Jesus had come to bring them. Jesus, the thing is though, did not come to meet our expectations or those of his fellow early Jews. Jesus did not come to fulfill your wants. He came to meet your deepest need. He did not come to slay our foes or to lift us up high. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for sins. For at the root of it all, the real heart of the human dilemma not our political problems, not our personal problems, not our financial problems. It is the, it is the problem of our estrangement from God, our sin problem. When Jesus came to deal with our greatest need, our estrangement and separation from God. And so the question is, how does a crowd go from crying, Hosanna, to crucify him? I can tell you, Jesus did not produce or perform. Jesus did not rise up to save them politically. Jesus didn't fix the lives they had decided to live. And it's the same way today. What happens when you stop, when you stop giving people free stuff? Stop giving quick advice on how to improve the life they've already decided to live. Or stop offering exciting worship experiences. You know what happens? People leave your church and they go to find a new one that's doing it better. That is the story of the church today. Come to our church because we're better at it and we'll give you free stuff. And we'll give you an experience that's better than the church you grew up in. Or your parents' church or whatever. And let me just tell you, that is a sad state the church is in today. And I, I can't help but wonder, as soon as it gets hard, or politically it's hard to be a church, or it becomes, in the environment, it becomes more and more hostile to being Christians, and these churches are going to struggle because it's no longer going to be fun or exciting to go to church anymore. It might cost you your lives. Or just... I can ask Andrew here. Go to there's places you can go to in this world where it, it is not okay to be a Christian. It'll cost you your family, it'll cost you your freedom and potentially your life. And you ask them to and you ask them what they think about the American church, they don't know what to say. Because what they'll say is it costs everything to be a Christian. And that's the state. And so Jesus came to challenge all of this. He came to suffer and die on our behalf and to show us the way to gain our lives is to lose them. Did you hear that? 
Jesus' message was, if you want to keep, you want to have the life you want, you want to have all these things, if you want, you want this, you want that Savior you think you want, the way to it is to lose it. Follow me to the cross. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, especially as we go towards this week to Good Friday, focusing on Jesus' crucifixion and into the resurrection on Sunday. What is your cry, for real? Is your cry Hosanna right now? But on the flip side, is the cry crucify him? What is the Savior you seek? You're looking for a personal Savior? Jesus to fix your problems in your life? Are you looking for a financial Savior that God would just... You know, get you this place where you can just feel comfortable or have the things you need? Are you looking for a political uh, savior that's going to fix the mess of our community and world that we live in, our country? There's probably a, a thousand other little saviors we seek. And Jesus rides to us humbly on a donkey, offering us life. That is the challenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much uh, for the challenge of the triumphal entry.